Hello, and welcome to the Natural Evolution Podcast, produced by Rebel Health Tribe. I'm Michael, and I'll be your host. Together, we will be hearing inspiring stories of healing and transformation, learning from some of the brightest minds in the world of functional medicine and holistic wellness, and exploring the world's best health-related products, services, tools, and resources. Right. We are live, and I'm very excited about this episode today. I am joined by Patrick McCown. Patrick, thank you. Hi, Michael. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. This is going to be a lot of fun. Breath and breath work and breathing, which we were just chatting about before I came on air, for me personally, is my current focus and the thing I'm most interested in. And when I when I lift this current self-imposed ban I have on training programs, breath is where I'm I'm going to be focused. And so I'm probably going to pick your brain about the best options there as part of this conversation for someone who's interested in learning more. And I'm sure our audience might be too after hearing what we're going to talk about. But before we get into that, if anybody out there is not already familiar with Patrick and his work, he's an international breathing expert and author based in Galway, Ireland. Since 2002, he's worked with thousands of clients, including elite military special forces, Olympic coaches and Olympic athletes. The Oxygen Advantage, which I just finished the audiobook myself, Atomic Focus, and The Breathing Cure are Patrick's latest books. There's so much more to this topic, I think, than most people have any clue or idea. So my first question to you is, you were once one of those people as well who had no idea about any of this stuff, right? Like you didn't grow up being like, I'm going to become an expert in breathing. So if you wouldn't mind just sharing a little bit about how this got started for you, and then we can get into the meat of the conversation. Yeah, it was a total accident. My whole teenage years, my childhood and teenage years of having asthma. And when you have asthma, you don't just have asthma. You have a stuffy nose. And when you have a stuffy nose, you're more likely to have sleep problems. And I was a chronic mouth breather due to my stuffy nose. So I was a faster breather and an upper chest breather. And uh, academia, I got through it. But uh, it took a lot of work because my concentration was not good. At 14, I left school altogether, never to go back, never to set foot in a school again. I was so frustrated with the whole education system. I was the child in my early years. I was very bright, the top of the class. At age 11, I went from the top of the class down to the bottom of the class. Nobody picked up on what, what was going on. You know, it was seen as I was the, the kind of the, not the, necessarily the troublesome kid because I wasn't troublesome, but I was the disinterested kid. And um, then I went back at 15. I went back and I was very driven to get into this university. It's called Trinity College in Dublin. And I worked very, very hard to get in there. Because again, I still had poor concentration and I had poor sleep. And that was the biggest factor. And faster and upper chest breathing, my physiology was more in that increased stress response. So I got into university, did my degree, got out of it, got into the corporate world, hated every bit of it in the corporate world and couldn't deal with the stress. You know, and it wasn't necessarily the company, but it was my... My physiology wasn't up to par. And my background was I did a business degree. I did a business degree and I was the most unprepared person going into business. But anyway, Michael, I knew I didn't want to work in that sphere, but I hadn't a clue what I wanted to work in. And I read a newspaper article. It spoke about the work of a Russian doctor, Konstantin Buteko. And he said the importance of breathing through the nose and also the importance of breathing light. And I was doing neither of those things. And um, I started putting it into practice and I will have no problem saying it changed my life. But I didn't make a total transition to work in that sphere. I stayed in the corporate world for a couple of years. And then I was driving from one side of the country to the other and I decided I would really love to start working in this area. And that was it. I quit the following weekend and I started down this path then. 
intuition and sometimes life directs you in wonderful ways, you know. But yeah, I never came across the importance of nose breathing despite being in a hospital many times with asthma, despite going to a medical doctor every three months for my prescription. Nobody told me about nose breathing during sleep, despite falling asleep in class, despite leaving school at 14 years of age. So all of those healthcare professionals, and I'm not unique, there are millions of children who are having such a challenging time. And we know children with sleep disorder breathing, they have 10 times the risk of learning difficulties. You know, we as an adult, if we wake up the odd day feeling pretty lousy, our day is not going to go so well. We're going to be irritable. Can you imagine that society demands these kids to sit down for six and seven hours, to sit down and to focus on a curriculum? And these children are tired and their physiology is in an increased stress response. So I really feel that, yeah, it was something I've been very fortunate. I've been teaching this now full time. 20 years come March the 17th this year, 2022. And um, it's been a lot, it's been a wonderful life. Wow. And uh, there's almost a, a vindication, I feel, because I was one of those kids too. And yes. I couldn't stay awake in school or anytime. And I was an athlete too. And I would be tired all the time. And I know I was breathing, like I have conscious memory of regularly breathing through my mouth as a kid. And I had orthodontic problems and dental problems. And I had so much nasal congestion in junior high and high school that my doctor suggested to my mother, I might have a drug problem, like that I was using cocaine or something. And I was like, really, that's the best you can come up with. I had no idea. And most people had no, like, obviously nobody thought of it or knew about it or anything. And, you know, something like snoring and it's almost like a joke in our culture, in our society. Oh, they snore like a chainsaw. Ha ha ha. Listen to that. And snoring is choking. We mentioned uh, James Nestor's book. It's called Breath, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. That uh, There were stories about buteco and, and the technique being used with people with irreversible degenerative lung conditions like uh, COPD and other things that were in our culture. If, if you're told you have this, the only option then is for that to continue to get worse until you die, basically. There's nothing you can do about it. Just like many people listening to this have probably been told about an autoimmune condition or some other health condition that that's, tends to be the way the conventional medical world looks at a lot of these diseases that are degenerative is they're degenerative because you keep doing the same thing that you were doing to make it happen in the first place. But practitioners of him and his practitioners of this technique were able to actually arrest the progress of and even reverse some severe asthma. COPD, you probably don't have the same asthma problem now, and COPD and other lung and breathing conditions that I had no idea it was even remotely possible to reverse. And so you mentioned nose breathing and mouth breathing, and I think that'd be a good place to start for the basics. Um, I love you saying the book mouths are for, and I don't think it, I think you quoted somebody else, but mouths are for eating, noses are for breathing. And this is not new information. I love that you referenced some indigenous cultures. Uh, I don't remember which one specifically, but when they would catch a child breathing out of oh, yeah. their mouth, they would cover the mouth. And this so this is the, not new. The North, this is North American Indians. Um, this was written okay. in a book called Shut Your Mouth and Save Your Life. Yeah, now, it, yeah. in, in terms of the Buteco, it was written by an American painter called George Caitlin back in, God, it was the 1800s, 1830s or thereabouts. But you'll find it on the net. So it's George Caitlin is his name. He taught that the, the traditions of the American Indians were dying out because of the Europeans going in and making a mess of everything, quite frankly. So he wanted to paint and document their traditions. And that's what he did in the book. And he, he spoke about the young infant 
with the mouth open. And any time that a young Indian baby had the mouth open, that the mom would come over and press the lips together. And he also spoke about the European infant with the mouth open. And the European infant gasping through the mouth, well, not quite gasping, but breathing, you know, mouth breathing. Um, just coming back to COPD, I can't honestly say if, if we can reverse COPD, not with my work over the last 20 years. But what I can say is that we've significantly helped to improve quality of life with COPD. And I will genuinely say that I've seen people coming in with COPD not able to walk, and we were able to get them walking again, that they were so breathless. And the thing here about breathing is that poor breathing often feeds in in itself. You know, you can imagine somebody with COPD. So COPD stands for chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. And it's not that 100% of their airways are narrowed irreversibly. There's usually a good component of reversible airway obstruction. Now, what I mean by that is, if you think the bronchioles, so we have the, the main, say, coming from the trachea into the bronchi, and then they subdivide into about 23 different branches. And these are the pipes that bring air from the nose or from the mouth down into the small little air sacs, the alveoli, where gas exchange takes place. Some of these pipes can be damaged. And also the alveoli, the small air sacs, can be damaged, but not all of them. And when somebody comes in with COPD, I always want to try and ascertain what's the degree of reversible airway obstruction here? What can we work with? And we show the person the importance of nose breathing. I also show the importance of breathing light because carbon dioxide and nitric oxide are natural bronchodilators. And nose breathing since 1988 has been shown to increase the pressure of oxygen in the blood by 10%. The PO2 in millimeters of mercury increases by 10% when you continuously nasal breathe. So nose breathing is there to protect the airways. It's antiviral, antibacterial. We've seen hundreds of people prone to colds and chest infections significantly reduce their colds and chest infections by adapting breathing techniques. People with poor gas exchange, even people with long COVID where their blood oxygen saturation was dropping pretty quickly, we could give them techniques to help to improve alveolar ventilation. And all of this is very simple stuff, you know. Don't breathe, breathe mouth fast and shallow, because if you breathe mouth fast and shallow, it impairs gas exchange. We as human beings, we spend a lot of our time upright. We are we are upright now. You know, we're standing upright, we're sitting upright during the day. And because of gravity, the greatest concentration of blood flow is in the lower lobes of the lungs. But if we're breathing through an open mouth, we're ventilating more of the upper regions. So the ratio of air to, to blood is not ideal. So I suppose it comes down to this, Michael. If you were to ask any medical doctor, what does the mouth do in terms of breathing? Is there any part of the mouth that is devoted? Is there any part of the mouth that performs any role in terms of the breath? And the answer is there's no part whatsoever. So what is the mouth when it comes to breathing? The mouth is a hole. That's all it is. And it's a hole whereby air can go straight in down your throat into the lungs. There is no purpose of the mouth other than an emergency. And I think our ancestors only mouth-breathed in those times, in times of emergency. Now we have to ask the question, if throughout our evolution, we reverted to mouth-breathing in times of emergency, and mouth-breathing causes faster and upper chest breathing, what is happening now today when we are mouth-breathing? It's also causing fast and upper chest breathing. And fast and upper chest breathing, what information has been fed from the body up to the brain is an emergency. And I would say that there's an increased sympathetic drive with people who migrate. But here's the problem. Nobody has bothered to do any research on the instance of migrating in the population, Western population. 
during physical exercise, I can only find five or six papers. That's it, five or six. You can imagine all the sports medicine scientists, all these wonderful, intelligent people, you know, these people in the universities, highly intelligent people, and they've missed the basic stuff. They've missed the basic thing, whether to breed, what's the human body, what's the physiology. But I'm going to say this, why on earth, even in a gym, are 90% or 95% of people in there with their mouths open? Because the mouth is doing nothing. Why no research? Why do we not know the incidence of persistent mouth breathing in the adult population? Only two papers. That's it. No research. Why has mouth breathing been overlooked during sleep? Why has the dental profession debated this for 100 years but done nothing about it? This is not, I'm not here to give out, even though sometimes I just wonder, how did they miss it? How did those intelligent people miss it? I, I don't have an answer to that. And it's frustrating and it's maddening. And it and it's a lot of things in our society seem we jump to like the most complex solutions possible or the most complex ways we can fix yes, things of possible. of course, because if you're oh, a young yeah. doctor coming up, you don't want to be doing research on breathing through the nose. What will your colleagues say? Your colleagues <laughs> will say, oh my God, here's a woo-woo. This, fine, <laughs> this guy or gal is airy-fairy, you know? If you're a young doctor coming up, you have to be seen to be the most cutting edge. The stuff that grabs the headlines. Nose breathing doesn't grab the headlines. No, but there's legit physiological backing to that. You mentioned an increase, uh, was it blood oxygen 10%? And I think that that's likely due to the production of nitric oxide. Um, Can you explain that just a little bit? Because nitric oxide is something that especially with COVID, has gotten more attention amongst like the super health conscious people who are into supplements and into all that kind of stuff, like NO2 supplements. People know about beets now and beetroot and and the production of nitric oxide. Uh, People know about Viagra, which is based on, I think, the same principle or has a nitric oxide component to it. So people know nitric oxide in relation, I think, now to circulation. And if you don't, there's there's a lot of... You referenced, I think you said there's over 100,000 papers on nitric oxide and improved vasodilation or circulation. So what does nitric oxide have to do with nose breathing? Well, I suppose just a couple of sites of anti-isoforms of nitric oxide in the human body. There's nitric oxide in the blood vessels, endothelial nitric oxide, and just nitric oxide in the nasal airway. And uh, when we breathe through the nose, we pick up nitric oxide-laden air and we draw that nitric oxide-laden air into the lungs. And nitric oxide helps to redistribute the blood throughout the lungs. Nitric oxide is antiviral. It is antibacterial. It increases, um, it helps to open up the airway. It's a bronchodilator. And it's likely that it is nitric oxide, which helps to improve gas exchange from the lungs into the blood because of a number of different reasons. Now, the nitric oxide in the blood vessels is different to the nitric oxide in the lungs. And I know when I wrote about nitric oxide and the oxygen advantage that I kind of made a little bit of an error, I think, in that I didn't isolate nitric oxide from the airways to nitric oxide in the blood because we actually thought that nitric oxide coming from the lungs actually got into circulation. There's debate about whether that's happening. It's not fully known. It's kind of one of those gas, like it was first discovered on the exhale breath of the human being in 1991. So even though there are many, many papers on it, And I don't think anybody can say that nitric oxide doesn't have a very important role in the airways. You know, even with COVID, I thought it was so important for people to be nose breathing because whatever chance they have of their body being able to defend itself 
you had a much better chance with nasal breathing than with mouth breathing. And also if an individual was infected, say a family member, that you have an infected family member, breathlessness and difficulty of breathing was often associated with COVID. The individual who's infected will tend to breathe through the mouth, but they are emitting 42% greater water loss into the atmosphere. And if they're in their family home, there's a greater likelihood that they, they will then infect if the virus was spread via water particles, which is generally accepted to be. Nitric oxide got no mention whatsoever. The World Health Organization said nothing about nose breathing. There was no government on in any Western society or any other society for that matter, which spoke about the importance of breathing through your nose to help resist or at least to help reduce the likelihood of you getting infected. Now, that was strange. Um, I did reach out to the authorities here in Ireland and I, I sent on a paper and the paper is called Could Nasal Nitric Oxide Mitigate the Effects of COVID-19? It was published in May of 2020 or 2021 in a journal called Microbes and Infection. It's an Elsevier publication. And basically, the article is pretty much saying what we've been saying for 20 years. Breathe through your nose. You know, we've seen thousands of individuals reduce chest infections. I've seen personally, I can, like hundreds, but we have 3,000 instructors throughout the world. So there's a, there's a large accumulation there. And if I, I remember doing a, a video for COVID back in March of 2020, I did a Zoom call, which was live. And everything went wrong because we, you were talking about technology beforehand. Everything went wrong. I didn't even have my laptop plugged in. And I was down to the last. The lighting was off. And of course, everything going wrong. And there were 100 people waiting and it oversubscribed, etc. But any event, I did the video and I thought it was, you know, everything was not good about it. The lighting, the sound, everything. We put it up on YouTube anyway. It's had over a million views. So, and we included all of the exercises as I knew back then with the very limited information. This was back in March of 2020. The exercises remain the same today. They absolutely remain the same. The only difference is postural ortos orthostatic tachycardia syndrome that can be associated with long COVID. But we also have exercises to help with that, that the autoimmune system with COVID and with long COVID is so dysregulated, it's really important to help to bring it into balance. And the one thing about breathing is you as a kid growing up and I as a kid growing up, who had responsibility, who took control of breathing in the last 50 years? Which community? Have they, have they taught it correctly? Have they taught it correctly? Maybe yoga? Have they missed out? I'm not going to answer Okay. <laughs> have they missed out? Have they missed out something wonderful here? And I would say that the community that did take it up was the yoga community. Can you imagine the reach that a yoga instructors worldwide would have? Can you only imagine it? That if every student who came in their door, that the yoga instructor guided the students both through the biochemistry, how to breathe less in order to improve blood flow, because you can feel it in a few minutes, in order to stimulate the vagus nerve, because you can feel hold increased on, water on. saliva. I want to stop you really quick. Sure. You just said how to breathe less to increase blood flow and yes. oxygen flow to tissues. That was something in James' book, he mentioned it, and in your book, you talk about it a lot, that I had to listen to that part of the book a few times, because it's like learning that you live in opposite day. So. You're saying that, and we can, we can go to the rest of the list. I didn't mean to cut you off, but I know others would hear that and have the same reaction that I did when I heard it. 
because I've been taught and I have a master's in exercise physiology. I was working with athletes. The bigger, the deeper the breath. Oh, wow. There's way more air there. So there's definitely going to be more oxygen there. So then I'm going to have more oxygen in my tissues. And even in yoga, because I love your differentiation, how you speak of um, authentic yoga. I don't remember the exact word, but authentic yoga teachers and instructors and practitioners versus the modern Western. And this is no shade towards anybody out there because you're teaching what you were taught. They teach also bigger, deep, big breaths, big breaths, big breaths, in out, loud breaths, big breaths. And when I was listening to your book and talking about underbreathing, this sounds very counterintuitive. It sounds the opposite of everything I've ever been taught. As an athlete or someone who worked with athletes, um, I'm sure it confuses athletes that you work with, at least at the beginning. Can you explain to us in relatively simple terms, I know this can get pretty complex, how is it that breathing less and underbreathing, if you want to say, or breathing less increases oxygen uptake into the tissues and oxygen like blood flow? So discovered back in 1903 or 1904 by a Danish physiologist called Christian Bohr, and he said it's the partial pressure of carbon dioxide in the blood that's a key factor in affecting the hemoglobin affinity for oxygen. Now, what, what do I mean by that? When we take a breath of fresh air into our body, oxygen is transferred from the lungs into the blood. And 98.5% of oxygen in the blood is carried bound by hemoglobin. So you can imagine hemoglobin as being the protein which is carrying the vast majority of oxygen in the blood. How do we get hemoglobin to release oxygen to the tissues? That's where carbon dioxide increases. So when carbon dioxide increases and blood pH drops, the hemoglobin affinity for oxygen reduces. So hemoglobin releases oxygen in the presence of carbon dioxide and resulting drop to blood pH. Now also as carbon dioxide increases, it helps to dilate the airways. Also as carbon dioxide increases, it helps to dilate the blood vessels. So it's really strange because this was one thing that got to me as well. When I came across it 25 years ago, I used to always have cold hands and cold feet making, always. And I remember you'd notice it getting into bed, for example, you'd feel your legs, you know, your feet would be so cold. But I remember just practicing after reading that article and I practiced under breathing. I had no idea what I was doing. I just took a really soft and hardly any breath coming into my nose, hardly any breathing. And I completely under breathed for about three to four minutes. And I was able to increase the temperature of my fingers. I knew straight away there was something then. I did the nose and blocking exercise, breathing in through my nose and out through the nose, pinching my nose, nodding my head up and down and holding my breath until I felt a strong air hunger. I was able to open up my nose. That's what breathing did for me. And I would say to anybody listening to this, listen, I know you've been told about the benefits of taking big, full, big breaths. It's, it's kind of the Western idea. The bigger, the better. Breathing is very subtle. You know, it's almost that I compare breathing to the introverted breathing and the extroverted breathing. Which one is getting all of the attention? Of course, the extroverted breathing. The one that's high-fiving and jumping all around the place. The one that's hyperventilating and doing long breath toes until they go blue. That's an extroverted breathing technique. That's a stressor. But there is a huge role for the introvert as well. There is a huge role for the introvert in society and also from a breathing perspective. The introverted technique is very subtle. And if you were to practice this, take a very soft, gentle breath coming into your nose and a really, really relaxed and a slow and a gentle exhalation. And then a very soft, gentle breath in. Almost when you're breathing in that you're under breathing, that you're breathing hardly any air into your lungs. 
and then a really relaxed and slow and gentle exhalation. And reduce the volume of air that you are breathing by about 30%. Do it to the point that you feel air hunger. And don't worry about doing it perfectly because the people who are more prone to breathing pattern disorders are people with perfectionist tendencies. So what I'd say is just, listen, give it a go. Focus on breathing in and out through your nose. Take the subtlest of a breath in. Really slow it down almost as if you were hardly hear your breathing. Well, you shouldn't hear it anyway during rest, but really slow it down almost as if you can hardly feel your breathing. And you're taking that subtle breath in and that really relaxed in a slow and a gentle exhalation. And see what happens your physiology. Can you change? It'll take you about four minutes. Four minutes of air hunger. Now, if you're prone to panic disorder, anxiety, go a little bit easier just because the air hunger can, can generate a little bit of panic. But generally, it's a bit, you know, a little bit of un- discomfort. So four minutes. Can you improve your blood circulation? Can you increase the water saliva in the mouth, which is a really great thing to be able to do? And I tell you why, because we are so overstimulated. There's so much information heading for us. All of those emails every day that we're receiving. You know, modern society, we would think that in today's day and age, 2022, that we could get by with two or three hours work every day because technology, surely technology could help us. But technology has increased our workload. And the reason being is because it's so easy to send people emails. You can send somebody an email in two seconds. But it will take that person quite a while to answer it. And if you think then our email boxes are being flooded, and this isn't even our work, we're not able to do our own work then. So we are overstimulated. How can we downregulate lasting at night? It's very important to be able to really slow down your breathing to breathe less air. How do you know if you're being downregulated? You have increased watery saliva in the mouth. It's a brilliant sign because when the body is ready for the digestion of food, that rest and digest response, there's increased water saliva produced to assist with the digestion of food. And yeah, I would say people practice it. And I would love to see the day that the yoga instructor, because they have such a tremendous reach out there, millions to millions of people, talk about nose breathing to every person who comes in, both on and off the mat, very important, during sleep, no yoga student should be waking up in a dry mouth in the morning. Nobody should be waking up in a dry mouth in the morning. But breathing less air for that period of time to understand that, yes, your blood circulation and your oxygen delivery and your airways and your physiology, stimulation of the vagus nerve to secrete the neurotransmitter acetylcholine, to cause the slowing of the heart, to strengthen the baroreflex. Our autonomic nervous system can be influenced via the breath. And it's not about taking these full big breaths. You can take full big breaths, but what do they do? I'd like to briefly interrupt this conversation to let everyone know that we've got a free downloadable Foundations of Wellness Starter Kit that's available for you right now over at www.rebelhealthtribe.com backslash foundations if you'd like a little help organizing and implementing all your learning from this podcast. A gift from our team over at Rebel Health Tribe, producers of this show. And now back to your episode. So what does Breathe Light do? Breathe Light is about breathing less air. It's targeting the biochemistry of your breathing. It improves your blood circulation, your oxygen delivery. It stimulates the vagus nerve and it strengthens the baroreflex. The baroreflex, the sensitivity of that is a very important indicator of the functioning of your autonomic nervous system. By breathing light, 
you also help to improve your tolerance to carbon dioxide. In other words, carbon dioxide is the primary stimulus to breathe. But if we are overly sensitive to the accumulation of carbon dioxide, our breathing is harder and faster. We don't want harder and faster breathing. We would have more labored breathing during rest, more labored breathing during sleep, which increases the risk of sleep disorder breathing, and more labored breathing during exercise. So that's to breathe light. And then to focus on the breathe low. And breathe low means that we've got good and optimal recruitment of the diaphragm. The diaphragm breathing muscle is connected with the emotions. And the diaphragm breathing muscle is also connected with the upper airway dilator muscles in the throat. The diaphragm breathing muscle is also providing stabilization for the spine. And then to look at the autonomic nervous system. Do you want to stress the body and mind to cause that to make adaptations? Or do you want to strengthen the bar reflex and stimulate the vagus nerve? So this came up in conversation at the start. Any breathing exercise can be broken down into whether it's focusing on the biochemistry or the biomechanics, or whether it's a stressor breathing exercise, or whether it's down regulation. So for example, cadence breathing, coherence breathing, slowing down the respiratory rate to between 4.5 and 6.5 breaths per minute. The ideal respiratory rate also practiced at different times during the day, not all day, but at different times during the day to help to bring balance in the autonomic nervous system. And then if we look at stressor breathing exercise, there's only two main ones hyperventilation. And it's not the speed of the inhalation, which is the stressor. It's the speed of the exhalation. Anytime we as human beings, if you want to stress your body and mind, breathe out fast. But if you want to relax the body and mind, breathe out really slow and prolonged. Because the slow and prolonged and relaxed exhalation, the body is telling the brain that everything is okay. Whereas a fast inhalation and a fast and hard exhalation, the body is telling the brain that there's a trash and it's getting the brain into overdrive. It's activating that stress response. And the other main way to stress the body then is by doing long breath holds. So, you know, we work with about 26 different breathing exercises, but they all fall into those three dimensions. And if you were to write down any breathing exercise, we can say, well, what is this breathing exercise doing? What's it doing in terms of biochemistry? Is it making you more sensitive to carbon dioxide buildup, which they can be, or is it making you less sensitive to carbon dioxide? What's the breathing exercise doing? Is it making you breathe shallow or is it targeting the recruitment of the diaphragm? What's it doing to the autonomic nervous system? Is it increasing epinephrine or is it causing down regulation by stimulating the vagus nerve? Any breathing exercise falls into this. And then we could say, well, what is the application of this for sports? What is the application of this for sleep? What is the application of this for mental health? What is the application of this for respiratory care? What is the application of this for dentistry? Like next Monday, I work with elite military snipers, which I've worked with a few times. And I'm brought in to bring breathing into when would you pull the trigger of a gun? And I know some people said it's not very spiritual, Patrick, but I was only thinking about it afterwards. If I was in some cafe and some terrorists come in and the terrorist was there holding everybody hostage, well, I would think it would be wonderfully spiritual to have a sniper outside the door at my back. So I think there is absolutely a very important role. And it's a European, it's a European group that I work with. Now, this will just give you a little bit of this. These guys are highly trained, elite of the elite, and they're all at that level. They'd be in association with the Navy SEALs and SWAT, etc. Their role is to stay in behind the sight of a rifle for one hour at a time, one hour of focus. 
unwavering attention. To do that, you need to have good physiology and you need to have good sleep. You cannot send in somebody with a sleep apnea. You cannot send in somebody who's breathing fast and shallow because their physiology is off. That's what I want to do. And we get the everyday breathing patterns right and improve their breath toll time, the BOLT score, which is an indicator of functional breathing patterns. In terms of the inhalation and the exhalation, the inhalation, the vagus nerve steps back. So the foot is taken off the brake. So it's almost that the inhalation is an acceleration. It's a stress response. The exhalation during rest is completely under the responsibility or the control of the parasympathetic nervous system. So in terms of pulling the trigger of a gun, do you pull the trigger of a gun during the inhalation? Or do you breathe in and do you pull the trigger of the gun at the top of the inhalation? Or do you breathe out? Do you pull the trigger of the gun during the exhalation or at the bottom of the exhalation? So what you have to do is understand the breath. During the inhalation, the heartbeat is increasing. It's getting faster. During the exhalation, the heartbeat is slowing down. If you have a relaxed and slow and prolonged exhalation, you're stimulating the vagus nerve. It's creating acetylcholine. The heartbeat is slowing. And the time to pull the trigger is in between heartbeats. So there's two aspects to this. One is get a good bolt score. These guys need to be in control and charge of their own physiology. And the second is to be able to downregulate during the exhalation and to pull the trigger in between heartbeats because all it takes is the beat of the heart to knock that focus off. A lot to unpack there. Um, thank you for sharing all of that. And uh, actually, in between heartbeats, I used to skydive. And I haven't heard terms like that used since I was in that world. And people would say, like, how would you know your heartbeat? If you bring your focus enough to the thing that you're doing, you know your heartbeat. And you know you can sense your heartbeat and feel your heartbeat. And I used to think I was into skydiving because I was a adrenaline junkie. But now that I've done a lot of spiritual practices and been involved in that type of... Um, I've done a lot of healing work and spiritual practices and... I understand present moment awareness, which is what you talk about quite a bit in the book. That's what I was chasing with the skydiving. And that's what I believe everybody in extreme sports is chasing is the present moment awareness, the zone or the the flow state or things like that. It's not the adrenaline. Adrenaline feels terrible for anybody who's ever... Adrenaline feels terrible. It's like speed and then you crash and then it's awful. And that's not fun at all. So it's not the adrenaline that anybody's chasing. It's the present moment awareness. And the way that you describe that, I can relate to the level of awareness necessary for in-between heartbeats. At first, I thought you meant to say in-between breath. And then I'm like, no, I'm pretty sure he meant heartbeats. And it's even just slowing down the exhalation to be able to lengthen the time in between beats. But Mm -hmm. Michael, it's very simple stuff when you understand a little bit about the breath. And the breath, okay, it's complex. It is multidimensional. Well, the biochemistry of what's happening is complex, but the rules are simple. There's two things I want to touch on for this audience specifically is one, you mentioned air hunger and under breathing. And I actually, my feet, I live in a 17th century, I believe, uh, building here in Italy and the floors are extremely cold. It's stone, everything. And so my feet are cold most of the time, no matter what I have on, because they're touching it and it's too much. Um, the cold comes through whatever I'm wearing. And while you were talking, after you mentioned that your hands and feet were cold all the time, and you said four minutes of under breathing would raise extremity temperature, I was doing that while you were talking. And it's actually difficult as a new 
practitioner of it or a person practicing it uh, to remain focused to you and what you're saying and following and bring the awareness to do the under breathing at a level that's like the right level. Because what you're you're not looking for and suggesting, especially for new people, that this air hunger, the under breathing gets so extreme that it's like, you know, you're, you're, yeah. you, if you have to do what I just did, if you have to gasp for breath, that's too much. These are not breath holds. And air hunger is something that most people are probably pretty uncomfortable with, at least at the beginning when you start, because it feels like you're suffocating yeah. a little, just a little bit. And I also enjoy in the book how you explain that this is almost like false advertising from the body because at no point during this under breathing are you actually deficient in oxygen getting to your tissues and that it is the buildup of carbon dioxide. And what you mentioned, the other thing you mentioned is the tolerance, carbon dioxide tolerance, the level of tolerance that you have for it. So you're saying that somebody who's trained in this and, and practices it often, they will feel that air hunger later. Uh, they can do yes. more activity. They exactly. will feel it later. They can hold their breath more. They can use more oxygen. Like they can have more of the gas metabolism going on, creating more yes. carbon dioxide before they will feel the need to have to breathe. So that tolerance increases. One, that's what you mean by carbon dioxide tolerance. And two, can you put people at ease a little bit that they're not actually suffocating when they do this? And how how saturated is the blood with oxygen? And does that really change? a lot during an uh, exercise like that? So normal blood oxygen saturation is between 95 and 99%. And basically most people are in around 97, 98%. It can fluctuate a little bit. Um, what does that mean? It means that all of your hemoglobin, so the protein in the blood which carries oxygen, what's the percentage of it occupied by oxygen? And when you take a very soft and subtle breath into your nose, and it is everything is nice and soft, and that relaxed in the slow and gentle breath out, you want to generate a tolerable air hunger. So the key is tolerable. If you're feeling panicked or stressed, you take a rest. If you lose control of your breathing, you take a rest. If you have involuntary contractions of the diaphragm, you take a rest. Because if the air hunger gets too much, the brain is going to step in and send increased impulses to breathe. And you'll feel this by having involuntary contractions of the diaphragm. So the air hunger is not due to a deprivation of oxygen because there's so much oxygen in the body that oxygen levels have to drop by half before they stimulate breathing. The air hunger is telling you that carbon dioxide has increased in the blood. And here's the ironic thing. You're deliberately breathing less air. You're feeling air hunger. Carbon dioxide is increasing in the blood and blood pH is dropping. Your blood vessels are dilating and there's increased oxygen delivery to the tissues and organs, including the heart and brain. So even though you feel air hunger, your tissues and organs are getting more oxygen. Now contrast that to, I'll give you an example. I was nervous going into an exam back in the day, 1997, 96, 95, I can't remember what year. I read this book about the importance of taking these full big breaths, fill your lungs full of air. And I said, okay, this is the solution. I'm going into an exam hall. I want to calm down. But just before I went into the exam hall, I went for a walk for three minutes on my own, my own space. And during the three minutes of walking on my own, I took these full big breaths, filled my lungs full of air. And I walked into the exam hall and I was totally spaced out and lightheaded. I never knew that the full big breaths that I was taking deprived blood flow to the brain. 
how much by. All it takes is 30 to 60 seconds to reduce carbon dioxide in the blood by half. So meaning carbon dioxide in blood, if it reduces from normal of 40 millimeters of mercury down to 20 millimeters of mercury, and every one, every one millimeter drop of CO2 reduces blood flow to the brain by 2%. So three minutes of hard breathing can reduce blood flow to the brain by up to 40%. That's how I went in doing my exam. And I think we really need to start shedding light on this because there is so much information and it's even got more so that the more you hyperventilate, the more extroverted your breathing technique is, the better. Listen, of course, there's a role for hyperventilation. There's a role for long breath holes, but it has to suit the person. And the only reason, Michael, I'm saying this is I have made plenty of mistakes with this. I have put people into panic attacks. I've put people into very severe anxiety. I put one guy into accident and emergency. I floored people with chronic fatigue syndrome, but I did it with good intentions. My intentions were not bad. I didn't, when I, like I'm 20 years doing this now, and I've had many thousands of people through my doors face to face, granted the last couple of years Zoom, but still a lot of people um, via Zoom. You learn things and you adjust accordingly. And there are many people that I would not do long breath holes with because we teach long breath holes. We have been for 20 years under no circumstances would I. And there are many people that I would not have them hyperventilation because I would be afraid to. So there are people that we, we have to gauge, you know, especially if you're dealing with people who have, you know, if their autonomic nervous system, if, if it's very dysregulated, I don't want to be stressing that person further. What I want to do is I want to, I want to be helping to, them to recover. And I want to give them the tools that they can bring this into their everyday life. You know, there is a time for hyperventilation and there's a time for long breath holes. I know it's got very popular. It's not going to be suitable for everybody. And I would feel that it's doing some harm because the wrong people are using it. The thing about breathing exercises, they, it deserves much more respect and it deserves much more of an awareness that it is multidimensional. Like it's like somebody going into a gym. You could have somebody going into a gym who's very obese who's got a lot of health problems. You're not going to ask that person to sprint up and down. You're not going to put them onto high intensity interval training. The gym instructor is going to know that this person, I'm going to start very easy with them and I might start them off with walking and we'll gently condition them. It's the same with breathing. So we should be gently conditioning the individual to where they are at. And if we can do that, and if we can just gently over a period of time, because sometimes like when the autonomic nervous system, especially with chronic fatigue syndrome, you could be working with that individual for six months. But what other options do they have? Thank you for, for prefacing that. I think that the type of breathing and breath work that is getting, I don't know, popular notoriety is the, the hyperventilation and the breath holds and things like that. I'm not going to name organizations or names or anything. And I've done that uh, at times. It's it's been helpful for me. I've felt good. Uh, I don't have any of the listed conditions that you list really clearly. You're like, don't do breath holds if um, I don't fall under that. And I appreciate your care in that. And the what we've been talking about the the under breathing and the and the reconditioning this tolerance for carbon dioxide and increasing uh, oxygenation of tissues and the hemoglobin releasing more oxygen. 
this is the type of breathing and breath and, and the activation of the vagus nerve and the longer exhales that are parasympathetic in nature. A lot of the people that listen to to this podcast and that, that are on our, our community here, they have chronic disease, they have autoimmune conditions, they have, they're starting to learn the significance of an overactive immune system and the fact that, I mean, overactive nervous system, like activated nervous system, more sympathetic will drive the inflammation, will drive the immune response, will drive all these chronic diseases. And they they do this diet and supplements and things like that. And these are the folks that, you know, they make marginal improvements there. They they get a little better, but they keep running into these walls and they're looking for more ways to impact their physiology and to show their body that things are safe. Because the body has a remarkable ability to heal when it's in a state of healing. And a state of healing is not an emergency state or a big mouth, breath, shoulder breathing, sympathetic state. And this type of under breathing, I think, can be a very powerful tool. If done properly, I like that you mentioned that the diaphragm, this is breathing into the belly. We're not talking about only filling the little tippy top of the lungs with air. I think it's a misconception for the air to get to the bottom. The lungs don't have to be full, right? And I don't mean to go to contradict you there. When sure, you sure, do sure. the light, when you do light breathing, it doesn't really matter. So it doesn't matter. Do you, yeah. The only reason I say that, because you're only doing it for a few minutes. It's not that we want somebody to develop shallow breathing techniques normally. And I would say too, if you have people who are quite unwell and they want to get into where all of these breathing exercises are, I put up a video, long COVID. This is specifically when people are really, really in a poor condition. And I had to start off gently. All of the exercises are there. You'll find it on YouTube. So it would be Patrick McKeown, long COVID. And uh, it's a technique that I was using. Where, remember, I said that I floored people with chronic fatigue syndrome. So I had to gear down. And now when I'm working with anybody, I always start off very gently at the start and just gently gear them up. So you want to kind of see where they are at. And I put everything into the long COVID video because we wanted to just put it out there. So coming back to when you're focusing on breathing less air, I only have one goal in, goal in mind. I want that person to feel air hunger. I'm not too worried if it's upper chest or is it diaphragmatic because if we start focusing on upper chest and diaphragmatic, now they're having to think of two different things and it's too much for them. So when we're doing the biochemistry, we only focus on the biochemistry. And then after a couple of weeks, when, when I'm pretty sure that they understand about breathing less air and what's going on and that they're making progress because their bolt score is increasing. Now, sometimes we step away from the bolt score if it puts too much pressure on people because I don't want to make breathing a performance either. Because if you make it a performance, you're putting a psychological pressure on people that hampers the very thing that you want to improve. So it depends on the person there as well. So it's kind of a passive approach. That kind of attitude of, listen, we don't care what happens. But the wonderful thing in the world is you have to give it a go. So then we focus, though, after a few weeks on breathe low. Now, the other thing, Michael, is if you're breathing through your mouth, you're not going to be breathing as low as you should be. Nasal breathing is the key for optimal movement of the, of the diaphragm. And mouth breathing is very much more upper chest breathing. I apologize for the noise in the background because we're building a new clinic here and we've got about 10 builders on site. And That's you so know good. how you know how it goes. Um, yeah, we've, we're putting on another four hundred square meters. So, but it's uh, when it's over, it'll be good. So we then focus on the biomechanics with good recruitment of the diaphragm. 
And then I bring in cadence breathing. I just, just two things that I'm thinking about when you talked about to people that you're working with. One is sleep. If these individuals continue to have sleep disorder breathing, they will always have that increased sympathetic drive. So whether they have snoring, now a little bit of snoring, okay, but obstructive sleep apnea is a problem and insomnia is a problem. And when you think about people, say, working to optimize their heart rate variability, they're practicing breathing exercises during the day, but they're not bringing good functional breathing into their sleep. And if they have their mouth open, it's a problem. And like we, I've been taping up for 25 years. It was the best thing that I ever Mouth did tape. to get a good night's sleep. Mouth tape, yes. I, I think that's that's creeping its way into the functional medicine discussions and circles is a simple mouth tape. And uh, you mentioned another thing I listened, so I don't know if there was a picture in the book, but uh, something else with snoring. It sounded like a... Oh, like a do you know, I'll show you what we use as well for mouth tape, because a lot of people are a little bit re resistant or reluctant to use mouth tape. We use, I have my own mouth tape. So yeah. this, this is our own tape. Um, it's called Myo Tape. Now, I developed it for children because, but then again, it became popular with adults because there's different sizes. I'll just show it to you because it kind of takes away the, the scariness of it. I see it has a hole in it's the middle. Of it. And you stretch oh. it by about 30%. Now, this one here is the orange one. At the moment, there's skin colored, and then it's going to be different colors. We'll have blue next. So there's an elasticated tension pulling my lips together, which is pouting my lips. But it's bringing my lips together. But if there was an emergency, the individual can, they can open their mouth. So that way we're helping to achieve nasal breathing, mm -hmm. but without the risk of covering the mouth. Beautiful. Yeah, my, I had a hesitation to it when I first, I've tried it a couple of times. I don't really, that I know of, have sleep apnea. Like I don't wake up with a dry mouth. I don't think it's a huge issue, so I didn't use it a lot, but it was weird. Sure. And I've had people say things like that. And I think that would alleviate a lot of the fear around it. So we could have a whole nother hour long conversation on snoring and sleep apnea and insomnia. So maybe we'll have you come back sometime and, and chat about that. Cause I know we're pretty close to, to out of time. So Oxygen Advantage is, is the earlier book that was from about five years ago. And then the breathing cure is the more recent book that you think would be the best place for people with health issues who are looking to just improve their overall health and vitality by changing the way that they breathe and by knowing more about their breath, that would probably be where um, you'd recommend they would go. Oh, I think The Breathing Cure, Michael, is a good book. It's very sciencey, though. Okay. Our do, audience do, is pretty sciencey. Okay, well, do you know what? Maybe they, they would like it because what I wanted to do was I wanted to show, actually, do you know what? The first two chapters contain all of the exercise and the programs for different people. Okay. And then I put in different chapters for diabetes, high blood pressure, epilepsy. Perfect. And I try to reference it as best as I can because I just feel that breathing has got too much woo-woo and there's been so much left to field associated with it. Breathing is not left a field. It's crazy. It shouldn't be left a field. It's not necessarily right a field either because the science hasn't caught up with breathing. It is more complex than... And of course, it does need research, but doctors in the main aren't necessarily interested. I'm talking about your conventional medical doctor. They're not interested in it. So it's not necessarily right a field. Breathing is for the people. It's right in the middle. And that's where I wanted to bring it with the breathing cure. And always, because when I started off this 20 years ago, 
healthcare professionals didn't want to know about it. So I started writing books and I said to them, I want in my head, I know this works because it worked for me. I knew it worked because I could help and I'd see reproducible results with so many meat people. But yet my whole intent was how do I get it into the hands of the people? I write a book. It costs $10 or $15 and people buy it and they can practice all of the exercises from the book. I'm grateful for your work. I'm grateful for what you've done. And when I first listened to to James' book and then your book, and then I follow you have great yourself and some of your students, I believe, on Instagram, post really mm. great content. There's things that I learn about breathing and you know the effects of raising your shoulders when you breathe, your mouth breathing, or what happens when you nose breathe, or all these different facts. These aren't conjecture. This isn't like, oh, I, I bet this is what happens. There's been so many moments when I've learned things that I almost get like rage that, I mean, I I know quite a bit of stuff when it comes to functional medicine and health and complexities of nutrition and biology and all these things. And I'm like, why the hell didn't anybody tell me this? Like, why isn't this where you start is the thing? Because breathing is so fundamental. It's, it's, it's more fundamental than what you're eating or what you're drinking or what you're moving or what you're, it's, it's literally the thing that makes you alive. And why is it like I'm discovering some big secret thing and it's like, no, this shouldn't be this way. Like it, Because, so, Michael, <laughs> it was monopolized mm-hmm. and it wasn't taught correctly. And I really feel that it is a question that I've asked so many times and it could have helped to avoid suffering with so many people. It was monopolized, yeah. but it was not being taught correctly. It's the biggest secret out there. And I'm not just saying it because I'm in the field. And it's still no, it, very it few is, people. It is. I get blown away. It. I mean, yeah. I get blown away when I read your book and his book and any book that anything I'm reading on breathing now, it, it just blows me away. Like it, it's like, what? How nothing impacts your physiology faster or more predictably than the breath. Like do this and then this happens right now. And there's very little other things that are that direct. I mean, take this supplement for six weeks and maybe this happens or do this kind of exercise and you probably will get stronger in some remotely predictable fashion over this amount of time if you lift this much weight. Like, yes, but the breath, the way you're breathing as you're even listening to this discussion is impacting your physiology right now. And it will impact how well are you able to even explain this or remember it. Or what can you, because we didn't even talk about it a lot, but focus and ADD, I have severe, I would have been yes. medicated in the 80s if it was as common to medicate kids then as it is now. I would have been medicated. I would have had all of that thrown at me. And it's the way you're breathing influences literally every aspect of mm-hmm. your physiology and your health and your experience of life. Since you've spoken about ADHD, there was a study by Karen Bonnock, and I definitely included in the breathing cure but I'm not sure if I included it in the oxygen advantage. Karen Bonnock looked at 11,000 children in Stratford-upon-Avon in the United Kingdom over either four years or a six-year period. She concluded that children who had sleep disorders at at five years of age, which includes snoring, if these kids were untreated at five years of age, they had a 40% increased risk of special education needs by age eight. She showed... This was published in the journal Pediatrics in 2012. 
a population of 11,000 children, a longitudinal study. She talked about in that paper that there are 3 million American kids with ADD and issues related to poor sleep. 3 million American children. Now, I'm talking about teenagers as well. This is a travesty. And this is a travesty because it's known in science that the child's brain grows during the formative years and it grows during deep sleep. It develops, sorry. The brain is developing during deep sleep. And if that child is having continuous fragmented sleep, it's going to impact the development of that child's brain. Now, how many parents know that? They don't. It's stuck in the journal Pediatrics and it's buried away. Yeah, I'll send you on the paper when we finish. And sure, you can sure. share it yeah, with we'll your audience. It. We'll put it in the show notes below with the link to your COVID video and we'll, we'll send to the website. Um, you can find live classes. You've trained, I don't even know how many practitioners, coaches, people who are doing this work. It's about uh, 3,000. About 3,000. In, so, in 50 countries. Can you hear? You got oh, some in Italians the States. On your, on your, uh, no, yes, we do. We have, some, we have some wonderful instructors in Italy. Okay. Um, well, I'm going to connect with you because I think I need to go through your training. So I'm going to, when I'm ready, sure. when I lift my band, <laughs> don't let me sign up in the next couple of months. But um, <laughs> when I'm when I'm ready, um, I, I feel like this is a, a very honorable crusade that needs to be undertaken. It's something that's just an elephant in the room that nobody's seeing or talking about. And mm-hmm. I personally feel that I know I was impacted by this. And like, I know I was one of those kids and I know what happened to me because of it. Like, I know the things that were said to me, like, oh, you're lazy. You can't pay attention. You're not focused. You're a bad kid. What's wrong with you? Why don't you do this? Why don't you do this? And I've done years of work now to undo the damage of some of that. And not everyone's so fortunate and gets to do the work to undo the damage of things like that or finds ways to do it or finds the people to help with it. So I'm inspired by by what you're doing and and, and others who are doing this work with just very basic it's so fundamental. That's the thing. That's the that's the kicker. The I've I've read, I know, I don't know all, I think you referenced twenty-three or twenty-six exercises. I don't know all of them, but the ones that I I've learned and that I've I've read in that book, this is not super complex rocket science. Yeah. Like most of these breath techniques are very simple. Now, I'm sure there's nuances to them and, and and things that can get more advanced. But if you're listening to this and you're interested in starting, you're not about to jump into some like uber complex new hobby. You're not learning how to play Mozart on the piano. You're You're just learning how to do the thing that your body does and do it in a way that it should be done and that it it's naturally going to do it. Like you just need to bring the focus back. And so thank you so much. And where's the best place for people to start if they want to go somewhere right now and they're inspired, they want to go yeah. check it out. Where's the best spot or best for, way for, for them health, to get started? The best place would be butecoclinic.com. Okay. And there is, there is an app as well, Buteco Clinic app, which is a free download. And it is all of the children's exercises free. So any parent who might be wondering, well, what can I do for my child? I put up about nine exercises or maybe eight exercises for children. And you can sit down the child and go through the exercise with your child. And it, it's, in, it's kind of a friendly towards kids. I'm working with my own child. So we record it just to, to put it out there because I think it's so important that it's the younger kids as well that they get this information. I didn't have it as a child. 
you didn't have it as a child, um, it's very important it gets out there. For sure. Well, thank you so much, Patrick. I really enjoyed this uh, conversation. It's actually, I was really excited about it. And it was one of the few, I interview a lot of people in the functional medicine and integrative health world. And I've interviewed, I don't know, I've interviewed a couple hundred and I rarely ever the day of an interview feel any like nerves or excitement, not, not excitement, but like nerves, like, Oh, I want to get this one right. Or I'm really excited to have this conversation. And I did today because the learning about the breath has been such an eye opener for me. And I've learned some pretty advanced meditation techniques. I work with a Taoist Qigong master that's kind of my coach and teacher. And you referenced in the Taoist Qigong, they mentioned, you know, the proper breath. It's not even that you wouldn't hear me breathing or I wouldn't hear me breathing. It's that I wouldn't even feel me breathing. Yes. And so I've had some instruction and I've, I've, I've felt the impact of the breath and the awareness on the breath and the present moment type awareness brought by some of this. Uh, it's yeah. changed my life like completely. And so now that I've learned that also it has all these amazing physiological effects, not only that it's this mindfulness practice that changes how I live my life, it also influences my physiology and my circulation and all these other things. It's like, man, this is like the the holy grail of things I need to learn. So I will be following up with you. And uh, when I'm allowed from myself to train, I'll be, uh, I'll love to dive into your trainings and learn more, but thank you so much for, for everything you're doing for writing books. I know that that's no small undertaking for the clinic, for training everybody, for just being a loud voice in this world for bringing us back to the fundamentals of breathing is um, necessary. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Michael. And that wraps up another episode of the Natural Evolution Podcast. Thanks for listening, and please check out the links in the show notes below to learn more about our guest and grab your free downloadable Foundations of Wellness Starter Kit, which will help you implement what you're learning here and make powerful shifts in your health and your life right away. Just go to www.rebelhealthtribe.com backslash foundations, and you can be started in only a few minutes. If you enjoy the show, please drop a rating, review, or subscribe to stay in the loop with future releases.